0: Verse number 35, let's begin reading there, and we'll read down through verse number 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. And he said unto them, What would you that I should do for you? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit, one on thy right hand, and the other on thy left hand, in thy glory. Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what ye ask. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said unto him, We can. And Jesus said unto them, You shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism I am baptized with all shall ye be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. When the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to him and said unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. So shall it not be among you, for whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister, and whosoever will be the chiefest shall be a servant of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, and to give his life a ransom for many." Let's pray together this morning. Father, we ask you to add your blessing to the reading of the Word of God. We ask you that you would guide our steps this morning as we walk through this text. Uh, Lord, it is truly my desire each week that we stand here, that we would not hear the voice of a man, but we'd hear the Word of God proclaimed to his people. And Lord, I pray, Father, that you would use us this morning for that end. Lord, work in our midst. In Jesus' precious name we ask it. Amen. You can be seated there. It has been our practice now for over a year and uh, almost a year and a half. We've been walking through the book of Mark and we have taken periodic breaks uh, from our journey through the book of Mark uh, to go and visit other texts and for other occasions. And uh, we find ourselves toward the end of chapter 10 here. And um, we've taken these breaks intentionally. And if you remember the first section that we taught through the book of Mark was chapters 1-8. through And in those chapters, we ask the question, who is Jesus? And that is a very important question, to know who is Jesus. And we determine uh, from the pages of Scripture that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Um, And we understood that to be the case. But then the question comes up, what is the mission of the Messiah? What did he come to do? And Jesus is going to lay out for us in our text today, in no uncertain terms, what his mission is. And he does that here in verse number 45 of our text. For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. That's his mission. That's what Jesus came to do, to lay down his life as a ransom for many. We've worked through this chapter here over the last several months, and as we approached it, we saw uh, some discussion on divorce at the very beginning of it. But then the question comes to the forefront, who can enter the kingdom of God? And uh, how do we enter the kingdom of God? And Jesus tells us that we would come as a little child and that we would come without prestige or without wealth. And these are the things that would hinder us from coming into his kingdom. And then Jesus in verse number 34 lays out very clearly what's about to happen to him. And he said, and they shall mock him and shall scourge him and shall spit upon him and shall kill him. And the third day he shall rise again. Now, this is the third time that in the book of Mark that he's tried to explain what is going to happen to him, and three times they miss it. Every time they're missing it, they they see it and they don't get it, and you would think, how can you miss this? And yet, they're still missing it. They're not understanding what Jesus has, Christ has come to, done, to do. Jesus has just out- outlined his purpose for coming to earth. He has confessed the plan of the cross in no uncertain terms, and now James and John enter with a question. The other gospels tell us that their mother came with them, and in this text we have the words put in James and John's mouth, and no doubt that is part of what is taking place here. And we get a picture of them coming and asking this question. As we look at this, I often will wait to the end of my sermon prep to come up with a title of what to title the message. I'm not sure how important titles are, um, if they serve any uh, lasting effect. Maybe they help me search them later, I don't know. Um, But that's about all I can think they really are good for but I seldom title a message this morning I had no title for the sermon when I came to the first hour and I told the church I don't have a title so you can title it whatever you want it You know his worst sermon ever or whatever you want to do, you know just put what you want to on it Um, But the whatever title you give it this morning brother uh, Kevin King came up to me afterwards he goes hey I got a title for your sermon And I'm like oh really and I said well what would you title it and he goes the sons of thunder ask a blunder it's a little corny, but, you know, it gets the message across, you know. Uh, but here we see James and John coming and asking an impertinent question. And I want to give this to us this morning. Uh, you know, James and John come, and we see in our text here that they come asking him to do something for them. And maybe James and John, being cousins of the Lord, uh, are thinking that somehow or another their family relation is what is going to give them connection. This could have explained their expectation of a position, But what we see in the foreground of all of this is that Jesus is heading for the cross and James and John are reaching for a throne. And they're missing the suffering servant aspect of the mission of the Lord. And I think often that is a mistake that you and I make. This morning, have you been blessed by the grace of God? Do you know what it is to know God's grace, to be a saving grace and a sustaining grace in the midst of trials and Uh, My wife and I were sitting and singing, and we were talking about, uh, she looked across the auditorium, and she said, it's so good to see people who you know are suffering lifting their hands in worship. And that is an encouraging thing. How many of you know that his grace is sustaining in the midst of trials? And it's amen, amen. And we rejoice in his sustaining grace in the midst of those trials. And if that be the case, if we know the God of all comfort, as we saw last week, then this text will teach us. To likewise, lay down our life for those who are hurting and to be a servant to others. So I want to outline our our talk this morning or the, the lesson this morning in four titles. Number one, a presumptuous question, a patient response, a public indignation, and a powerful teaching. And we're going to break it up in those sections. And so for the presumptuous question, let's look if we could again to verse number 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. So they're looking for a yes to their question before they ever ask the question. Maybe your kids do that to you. Hey, Dad, will you say yes to what? Just say yes, Dad. What do you want to know? Uh, no you can't build a tree house on top of the house it's not going to work but you know they're asking the question uh, that they want to make sure they get a positive response to and so they come to him and Jesus then asked them he said well what do you want me to do for you and I I, I would encourage you to mark that in your Bible if you're in the habit of doing that because we'll look at that again uh, in next week's message Uh, he said what would you have me do for you what do you want me to do and what an open-ended question that is Can you imagine standing before the Lord and and you say, here I am, and this is my name, and I've got a question for you. And he said, well, what do you want me to do for you? Man, that's pretty open-ended. That would be an incredible audience to have. And let me just say as a side note, you have that audience today if you're a child of God. You can go to him in prayer, and you can ask him whatever is on your heart, and he is able and more than able to meet that need. And he will give us the very desires that our hearts need to have. He said, what would you have me to do? And so then they proceed further. Well, we we want to sit on your right hand and your left hand uh, when you come in your glory or when you come into your kingdom. We like to sit on your right hand and left hand. Now, I would imagine if this argument had persisted longer and Jesus said, you guys can have the right hand and left hand, they would have started arguing who gets the right and who gets the left. Uh, but here Jesus looks at them, and he hears their question, and, and what an impertinent question, what a presumptuous question to say, hey, give us the right hand and the left hand. And maybe, as I said earlier, it's because of the family connection that they thought, hey, we got an inroad here, and if you remember, Peter is usually a part of this inner three. And here Peter has been cut out. I mean, they dealt him out of the hand altogether, and they went alone to the Lord, and they're like, "Hey." Uh, While Peter's over there doing his thing, we got a question for you. Can we sit at your right hand and left hand in your kingdom? And the picture here is that place of power and and influence next to him. And they clearly have an earthly kingdom in mind. Calvin says of this text, this narrative contains a bright mirror into human vanity. For it shows that proper and holy zeal are often accompanied by selfish ambition. And how often do we find our very passionate desire to see something done for God clouded with our own selfish ambition? Well, I'm happy to do something for God as long as I can get the credit for it. I think too often I am guilty of seeking Jesus and something else. Well, I'll be happy if I have Jesus and a successful job. I'll be happy if I have Jesus and a good marriage. I'll be happy if I have Jesus and a good church. I'll be happy if I have Jesus and a good uh, social circle around me. See, Jesus is never an end to anything you want. He is the end of what you need. He is what you need. You need Jesus. I need Jesus, and let's pursue him for him. Pursue him alone. So we move into this text here, and I quoted one pastor, his name is Rodney Martin, and I just uh, follow him on actually social media, and he made this quote this week, and I thought it was so s- spot on. He said, if we are being honest, often the desire to do big things for God, quote unquote, is a convenient way to mask our desire to do great things, God or no God. We just want to do great things, But we want to say we're doing it in God's name. You see, Jesus is marching his way to the cross, and these men are seeking promotion. Now, I would ask us just to stop here and say, how do these guys miss the point so much? How do they miss the big picture of what's going on? Have you ever worked with somebody that couldn't see the big picture? They couldn't see what was going on? And maybe even dealing with your children, how do you not get this? We have to leave. How can you lose your shoes? Your feet are the only one they're ever on. You know, it's just, how do you miss the big picture so often? And we get very impatient with people who miss the big picture. And it's very easy at times, even as a pastor sometimes to say, don't you get it? It's more than just you. It's more than just what you want. And it's very easy to get impatient with those who miss the big picture. And yet I'm so glad that when we miss the big picture, our Lord offers a patient response. And so we see not only a preposterous or a presumptuous question, but a patient response from the Lord. The Lord doesn't do like what I would like to do often, is just look at them and say, you bunch of knuckleheads, what's your deal? Get with the program. Don't you know there's something going on here? Don't you know there's a work to accomplish? Why are you over here seeking position? We've got things to do. And yet Jesus doesn't respond in that way at all. He looks at them and very graciously in verse number 38, he says, you know not what you ask. He said, you don't know what you're asking for, men. And he said, and I understand that you don't understand. Aren't you glad he understands we don't understand? So when we pray for things that we shouldn't pray for, he gives us what we need, not what we've asked for. And what a gracious and patient heavenly father that comes to us and he pours it out. He said, you don't even know what you're asking for. I'm reminding of our kids coming to me uh, when they were younger, and we, when we were in Ohio, we lived on two acres, and so we had a good bit of land behind the house, and it was surrounded with trees, and a uh, fence row on the one side, and it was a perfect place for camping out in the backyard and having a bonfire, and, and we did a lot of that. And I remember when the kids were little, hey, Dad, we want to put the tent in the backyard tonight. Can we sleep out there? How many of you had your kids want to do that? You know what I'm talking about? They want to camp out in the backyard. And how many of you know that usually lasts till about 1130? And then they're coming back in with everything, uh, or just about the time you fall asleep, and they come traipsing back in and opening the door. And, you know, I look, I'm like, you don't know what you're asking for. And one time in particular, I, I purposely uh, snuck around and scared TJ and his buddy who were camping out in the backyard, but... Um, He's not in here to give you. He was here the first service, and, and I got to, we got to laugh about that a little bit. Uh, but I, I won't admit whether or not I was doing that, so I didn't have to sleep out there. But uh, we, uh, we got him inside nonetheless. Um, but, you know, a lot of times we ask the question, we don't even know what we're asking for. Jesus looks at me and he said, Can you drink of the cup that I will drink of and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? And now, this is not Jesus saying, Can you atone for man's sin? He's saying, can you join me in my suffering? The cup here is that same picture of the cup of suffering as when we go to the Garden of Eden just a few chapters ahead and we see the Lord there praying in the garden and he's saying, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And he, he's picturing here this cup of suffering. It is God's judgment, the suffering that was placed upon him. And he's saying, men, are you able to join me, identify with me in my suffering, and go through the cup and go through the baptism, both inward and outward suffering? The baptism here is not picturing a water baptism, but the word literally means to be placed into. He's being placed into this suffering. Now, this question is a pretty heavy question, and we would think maybe it would give them some pause to think about it for a minute. And yet, immediately, they respond, and they respond very succinctly, we can. No problem. Sign us up. What do you need us to do? We can go through it. Wee's Word Studies reminds us that this confession is one of moral courage, not spiritual strength. These men were definitely courageous men. They're definitely bold men at this moment. Let me say this, moral courage is not without believing, faith is of little value in the midst of a trial. Unless you understand who he is and what he's called us to do, you are going to wilt as I would wilt in the face of the real trials. And they look at Jesus with this bold response, we can. Jesus responds, he said, you will drink of the cup that I drink of. And you will be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. He said, to sit at my right hand and my left hand is not mine to give. And what is he saying? It's not given in this manner. It's not going to come through this way of you jockeying for position. And he said, there is a preparation process that prepares men for that role. And my father will care for it. John indeed was baptized with this baptism of suffering. He drank of this cup of suffering Tertullian in his history writes that John was cast into the boiling oil and yet even while boiling in the boiling oil, it would not kill him and he survived it. On another occasion, legend has it that John was forced to drink a cup of poison and he drank the cup of poison and it was no effect on his body and as a matter of fact, if you were to Google a painting of the Apostle John in many of them, you'll find him holding a cup in his hand. Picturing this legend that he was forced to drink poison and yet did not die. And then we find him exiled to Patmos. And they thought, if we can't kill him, we'll just isolate him so he can't get around anybody. And God gave him the book of Revelation and he wrote that for our edification. John ended up dying in hard labor. And he knew what it was to face the cup of suffering. To be baptized with the baptism the Lord was baptized with. James, his brother, early on in the book of Acts, is preaching the gospel, captured, arrested, and summarily beheaded for his faith. He too knew what it was to be baptized with the baptism of his suffering. So John and James did care that, but let me say this, it was not we are able that carried them through. It is not we can. We can do this. We've got this. That's not what bore these men up to handle the suffering but i believe it's what john wrote in 1 john 3:16 look at that if you would with me very quickly but in first john chapter 3 and 16 here's what he says hereby perceive we the love of god why because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren the sustaining thing was not their moral courage but this powerful example that was in front of them. They saw the Lord laying down his life, and they too laid down their life, willingly and freely. You see, the Lord ministered to them. The Lord's ministry to them, then and now, is about not about human promotion, but about giving self for others. It's laying down me for someone else. So we see the question, and then we see the patient response, but now we see a public indignation. This word indignation is uh, given to us not in the King James here, and, and literally some, this is very politely worded in the King James. In verse 41, he said, when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. And that's a very polite way of saying that they were mad. Uh, how many of you ever had uh, a time in your life where your mom was mopping the floor and she made you go outside till she finished? Anybody do that? Okay, a few of you are nodding your head. Um, my mom would do that regularly, and so we would be put out of the kitchen, and you, you know, you you had to go through the kitchen to get into the rest of the house, and you guys go outside and play. I'm going to mop the floor, and you stay out there, right? And don't you come through here and mess my floor up, and you know, and, and, and inevitably, mom would have the floor all mopped and clean, and everything would be good, and we'd forget and open the door and come running through the kitchen, right? And we got dirt on our shoes, and we're walking through her wet floor, and And mom, I think you could read this text and say, and she began to be much displeased, um, much displeased. She was bothered by what just happened, and uh, what are you doing, messing my floor up? The word here is an argument, disgust, sharp disagreement to the point that it threatened the fabric of their relationship. It's indignation. These men were angry. Why, why, why do you think they were angry? I, I don't believe they were angry because they were jealous for the Lord's glory and desiring to be servants themselves and were saying, you know, you should have known better. Jesus is about to be crucified. You're supposed to be a servant. I don't think that's where their anger is coming from. I think their anger is more coming from, man, why didn't we think of that? It's like, man, we should have got their purse. It's kind of like your kids when they get angry because one of them calls shotgun too soon. Oh, I was going to call shotgun. That's not fair. I wanted to be first. I wanted to go first. And here I think these men had that same childish ambition, that same selfish ambition of wanting to be preeminent, and somebody got the, an edge up on them. You know, it is often the thing that we dislike in ourselves that we criticize the most in others. When we see these things in our somebody else is doing, what it tends to do is we see their selfish ambition and it reflects our own heart and we don't like it. And so we lash out at them and what are you doing that for? Well, you would have done it if you were reversed or had thought about it. And so often that is the case. It reveals what is really on my heart. The other ten hear it. They're angry. They're angry because someone else is seeking promotion over them. Now I wonder, am I angry when someone else gets a promotion? Am I angry when someone else tries to get ahead of me? Or let's put it this way, am I angry when someone tries to get ahead of me in traffic? This week, pa- Pastor Caleb and I were driving and we were, I think we were going up to Culver's to have some lunch and uh, we we jumped in the car and I turned out on Hayes Road heading north and I ended up in the far right lane and I thought, well, I need to get over so I can get into traffic and and I was... Kind of going behind a guy was kind of slow, and so I, I put my blinker on to get over, and when I did, the guy behind me just jumps out of the lane and flies up next to me, you know. And uh, I, I just prayed for him and said, Lord, bless you and keep you, and may his face shine upon you. Um, no, I, I got a little bit indig- indignant with him, and I'm like, what are you doing, man? I'm like, your mom probably cuts the crust off your toast, too, you know. You're like, get out of here, man. What are you doing that for? And I was so aggravated with this guy moving up in traffic because that's my position, my place. You know, when someone gets a one-up on us, does it make us angry? Does it reveal to us? And let me just say, when we see the frustration welling up in our heart over someone else's even selfish ambition, it ought to be a red light on the dash of our spiritual car saying something is wrong in here. The problem's not out there. The problem is here. That I need to have my heart checked. Do we see it as a missed opportunity for self advancement? The word "indignant" here means to feel pain, to be grieved. Does the advancement of others grieve us or cause us pain? Now, this is by no means to ignore that there is true hurt in rejection. And if you've ever been rejected or left out or passed over, you know what it is to be hurt by that. And those pains are real, but it's, it's causing us not to diminish the pain of the hurt or even the feeling of being rejected, but to examine our response when we are slighted, do we respond in anger or do we pour out grace? And the call of the believer is that we would pour out grace when we are done wrong. So Jesus then is going to give them a powerful lesson. They're angry with one another. There's a chiding going on. And Jesus says, hey guys, come here and sit down. Let's talk. He pulls them all in and patiently instructing. And he's going to then give them a contrast. Verse number 42, he called them unto them and said, you know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And their great ones exercise authority upon them. So what does he say? Hey, look, guys, you know the system of this world. You know the system that is going on, that they exercise lordship. This word here is literally to control or to subjugate. It's to push down. It's to to be authority over. Let me tell you what you're going to do and what you're not going to do, and and you will do what I tell you to do when I tell you to do it. And you're like, man, that sounds like the way I grew up, right? Right? And I, and I think it's looking at this picture of this lordship over them. It was not just because they sought to be lords over, but they themselves were lorded over. Look what he says. Their great ones exercise authority upon them. It's kind of like, I'm going to give it to you because my boss gave it to me. And he's going to come down on me if you don't straighten up, so I'm going to give you a hard time too. And, and it's this top-down, pressing-in, oppressive lordship because they themselves have been lorded over. You know, if you were ruled by a tyrant, it is very tempting to follow that example and to rule as a tyrant. You know, I think of the tyrant of addiction. And how often I've seen addiction grab a hold of someone as a tyrant and control their lives. And it causes them to be a tyrant over the rest of their world. And they rule with an iron fist. Those that are locked into the tyrant of anger and a temper... Do the same in their world around them. Now let me make a comment here as a sidebar if I could. Jesus is not focused on changing the Gentile system. He's not starting with some kind of political creed here that says we ought to reverse everything. But he is establishing for these bold, ambitious, selfish men a countercultural order of humility and servanthood. He's saying, guys, not in my house. Not in my kingdom. Not in the kingdom we're establishing. That's not how we're going to run things. We're not going to lord over. We're not going to be power over. We're going to do things completely different. You see, and here's the other thing. Jesus is not abolishing authority. But he's reordering its purpose into the God intended purpose of authority. God does not give parents authority that they might press down upon their children. I heard one jokingly say a long time ago, I knew I wanted kids when I wanted something to drink and didn't want to get up and get it. And they were trying to be funny, but I think a lot of times we're not careful. We can just abuse with our words and our pressing down of authority. Dads, our call is to lift up our sons. And encourage them into manhood, to walk them into it, to lift up our daughters and encourage them as they walk. Moms, it's our our job not to constantly point out the flaws, but also praise them for their strengths. And encourage them as they walk through it. And do the measuring of your words and find out if they are building words or they are tearing down words. Are they lordship words or are they servants' words? And that is the call for each of us as we walk through this. See, the instruction of the disciples, he says, not so in my house. What does he want them to do? He said, there is not lordship over any person for any reason. None of that has any place in the kingdom of God. God's model is not mastery but servanthood. He says here, the great will serve. Those who will be chiefest among you will be your ministers. This is what he's calling for us to do. You see, the positions in this world are reserved for those who would deserve them and take them by force. And I'll reach out and I'll get mine. And yet in the kingdom of God, the positions and authority are given for service and building up, not for lording over and keeping down. Minister is the word diaconos, which means to be seen in action. Servant is the idea of the lowest form of slave. One who would be a slave. Well, I'm not going to be a slave for anybody. And yet the whole order of the Lord Jesus Christ is that we would be servants of all. That we lay down our life for all. So we see us set the example of Jesus and the cross. Verse number 45 gives us the example for even the son of man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many, even the greatest of all. The God of all creation, the one who stepped out on nothing and spoke everything into existence, he's the one that becomes the suffering servant. He's the one that lays down his life for all, and he's calling us to follow that example. He came not to be ministered to, but to minister. Let me ask you, why do you come to relationships? Why do I come to relationships? Do we come with a, a pre-desire to get something out of it for ourselves or to pour something in? Let me say this, we cannot do this of our own, because he gave his life a ransom, a price for a slave in the place of us, that we could walk differently. You see, the code of the church is different than the world, and in the pulpit commentary that I refer to often in my studies, this little paragraph was given to us, and I want you to listen closely to it as I read it aloud accordingly of this text, if you would know whether an individual or a community or a church is truly Christ's, apply this test. Do not ask, is the creed orthodox? Are the devotions splendid or fervent? Is the profession loud and ample? But ask, is the Spirit of Jesus manifest? Is the law of Jesus observed? For if a man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. They are truly Christians who instead of asking how can we enjoy ourselves, how can we raise ourselves, they ask on the contrary, how can we live as ministers of one another and servants of all? What powerful words. Ministers of others, servants of all. So then in conclusion this morning, Christian ministry is intrinsically woven around the cross. It is the reality of the cross that makes our ministry possible. Unless you have been purchased by the ransom uh, of Jesus Christ and made a new creature in Christ, you do not have the capacity to serve selflessly as we're given to do here. The farther we live from the cross in our daily lives, the more like lords we become. The further we walk from him, the more top-down we become. I think many men do not mind tyrants as long as they get the job. As long as I can be the tyrant, I don't mind tyranny. But God calls us to be servants. You see, when ministry is repulsive and lordship is appealing, then we are not in harmony with the gospel. The gospel is not a veil for our own kingdom building and self-promotion, but it is a demonstration of the power of God to take self-serving, egocentric men and women like us and transform those same people into humble, willing ministers for his glory. That's what he does. You see, we we are not ruled by a tyrant this morning. we're ruled by the suffering servant the lovely Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life as a ransom for all and friend if we have that kind of leadership above us then could we not mimic that and minister just as he did and it is only in relationship with him that we can follow the example so where do you serve where's your opportunity to be a service I've written a bunch of things down here and I'll not cover you so just because I don't list what yours is, don't think that you're off the hook. Fill in your blank. Maybe this morning is nursery duty. Oh, pastor, another week in nursery. Maybe it's children's ministry or homeschooling. Now every mom's become a homeschooler and dad's become a homeschooler to some degree. It's all changed around very quickly. Maybe it's just clocking in at work this week and that's where you pour in most of your service. Maybe you volunteered her recently to be a growth group leader or a member and you're laboring there or you're working in a on Wednesday night or you're t- singing in our choir and you're volunteering with our music team. Maybe you're working in junior church on a rotation or maybe you're in the PA booth and you're helping out there. Maybe you're at home and with your spouse or with children or with friends. Maybe it's just your brother and sister that you need to learn the spirit of servanthood too. But see, regardless of where we find ourselves, are we lords or are we servants? Are we laying down our life? And so in conclusion, let me give you four things that I think wrap up what we're talking about. First off, this, servants can't, this service cannot be strained but must flow. What do I mean by that? I, I don't think it's standing around trying to figure out how to be kind. And how to be a servant. You know, it's like, I'm going to be kind to you whether you want me to or not, you know. It's, it's, we've all said things that are forced, right? You go to somebody's house for dinner, I'm like, hey, how did you like the food? It's great. Wonderful. Thank you. I could give you some stories. And we, we've all been there where you're like, it's just, it's a chore to do this. That's not what we're called to as believers. We're not called to just force it out and make ourselves be a servant. You see, the gospel doesn't guilt me into service. I think I have been guilty in the past in my own teaching, and I know I've heard it taught many times, that somehow or another the cross hangs over us as a perpetual guilting into being a good Christian. Well, you won't do that for missions? Look what Jesus did for you. You won't serve in the Sunday school class? Look what Jesus did for you. And it's this heaviness that kind of weighs on us that, yeah, you're right. He did a lot more for me than I've ever done for him. I got news for you. You're never going to catch up, all right? And so don't let your ministry be something that is forced out of a guilting into some kind of religious duty, but let it be something that is a love that flows from you because you spent time with him, and it is in his presence that he makes us sweet, that he flows through us, and it is only with his presence that we find joy in ministry. We serve today not because we must, but we serve today because the greatest servant of all has taken up residence in our heart. He lives inside of me. And that is the hope I have of service that is not a forced service. This service will not always be convenient, but it will be costly. You see, now, pastor, that seems to be contradictory. You said it wasn't going to be forced, and now you're telling me it's going to cost me. Well, I would say that these men who suffered for the Lord, they went to their suffering with joy But there was still a cup of suffering and there was still a baptism of suffering. See, Christianity is not always going to be convenient, but I would say that even as we are going through the trials and even as we're laboring long hours and we're putting in the extra effort to minister, we can do so from a joyful heart because of the one who lives in us. And yes, even lay down and sacrifice ourselves as we do it with a smile on our face and joy in our heart because he lives inside of me. Not because I'm guilted into it, but it will cost me. It will not always be something that flows into my schedule. It will cause me a change of schedule on occasion. It might cost me a little bit from my pocketbook on occasion. It will cost me my time. And if we are blessed enough, maybe we could stand with these apostles and be counted worthy to lay down our life for his name. There is a cost in ministry. Let me say number three. All service must be seen in its eternal context, not its temporary drudgery. What do you do? Maybe you're a mom and you're like, if I have to pick up another pair of shoes out of this living room, Maybe you're here this morning and you're saying, You know, I'm just tired, Pastor. I've been working the same job for these years. I just don't see I'm making an impact. I don't know if I'm making a difference. Maybe you've changed enough diapers that you don't ever want to change another diaper again. Maybe you've filled out enough tests and maybe you're going to school and I'm just tired of it and nothing I'm doing is making an impact and I'm just struggling all the time. Here's the thing most of us have jobs and get work that we can enjoy, but there are days, are there not? How many of you love your kids? Alright, how many of you want to strangle your kids some days, alright? Alright, don't put that on live stream, alright? Um, so the, um, the fact is we all, we all want to pour in, but we know there are drudgeries and everything. I, 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 I'll be honest with you, I believe that I am privileged to have one of the greatest jobs in the whole world. I, I have the privilege of standing before a group of people who love the Word of God and want to hear it, and I get the privilege of opening the Word of God and preaching it to you. What a joy it is. But I got news for you. There are days. There are days where I'm thinking, man, that person slept every service for the last month. And I'm like, what is going on here? I'm not getting through. And, and I, I sit back at times and you, you, you feel that drudgery that just kind of wears on you of like, man, we've done this so many times and so many weeks and so many years. Are we going to make an impact? Are we going to see fruit? Is it going to make a difference? And I think what we do, if we're not careful, is we measure what we're doing for God by the drudgery of the temporal. But here's the thing. You can't see the impact of the eternal. You don't know what's going to happen with that little one who you've picked their shoes up countless dozens of times and you've, you've had to correct them a hundred times and that was just this morning on the way to church. And you've had to tell him again, no, sit down. No, don't talk to your brother that way. No, don't do that. No, don't put your hands in that. Why are you wiping that all over there? And you've gone through that a hundred times. You've done it. But here's the thing. You don't know what you're impacting in eternity. God is not given for us to see that. And here's what I want you to see, is that what you do impacts eternity, whether you realize it or not. So lift up your eyes and set your affections on things above and understand if you are loving and serving someone, no matter how much the drudgery seems to overwhelm you, you are impacting eternity. And so mamas, braid that hair, fix those boys' shoes, Lick your thumb and wipe the stuff off their face again. Daddies, get up tomorrow morning and go to work. Come home and put your arm around your kids and tell them you love them. Tell them to clean their room up. Tell them to cut the grass and keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it and teachers, keep preparing lessons and when you fail, and I know for a fact that it happens, your pastor, it's Saturday night at 11 o'clock. I don't have my lesson ready. What am I gonna do? Study your lesson at 11 o'clock and come into church and keep on going. And keep loving those kids because you can't measure what's happening in eternity. And the devil would love to take us and put our minds on only what we see here. But I'm so glad there's more that we cannot see that's being done. And we don't know but what there may be a missionary that goes whose shoes you've picked up a thousand times. And you're just caring for the beautiful feet that would carry the gospel to another world. And another area of this world. Who knows what God is preparing them for? And so we keep on in the midst of drudgery. Let me say all service must be seen in eternal context, not its temporal drudgery. And number four, our service must be worship for his glory, not pity for those we serve. Let me say that again. Our worship, our service must be worship for his glory, not pity for what he serves. Here's the thing. People will eventually disappoint you. No man, no group of people will be worthy of your service for very long. Because you're going to see what they really are. You're going to find out that they're sinners just like you, and you're like, man, they're, they're a sinner too. Why do they keep annoying me? I'm just, I'm not going to do this anymore. And we, if we're not careful, we can start into ministry with this almost drive of pity. Well, they need help, and they need help. No, here's the thing. We do what we do. Not because men need help. We do what we do because he is worthy. And he has set the example. And he doesn't tell me to serve you because you're worth it. And you don't serve the people around you because they're worth it. We serve because he is worthy. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. Father, I thank you that, Lord, you are ministering to my heart through these texts of scriptures. Lord, we thank you for it. Lord, we ask you that you would work in our midst this morning. You will work in our hearts that only you can do. Lord, I pray, Father, there be one under the sound of my voice that doesn't know you as their Savior. If, follow this morning they would turn to you in humble faith and accept you before it's too late. Let's stand to our feet together this morning. We're going to sing.